So we're in Malachi 3. Go ahead and find your way over there. Again, the easiest way to get there. It's the last time you'll have to hear me say this because it's the last time we'll be in Malachi. Uh, go to Matthew. Go backwards a book. You'll never forget where Malachi is the rest of your life now. Uh, last book of the Old Testament. So uh, we've been going through Malachi, and it's this, this series that seems weird of uh, God's people actually disputing with him back and forth. And it's a series of these six disputes between God and the people of Israel. And tonight, or today rather, we're looking at uh, the sixth, the final one of those disputes. Uh, and I don't have any big introductions, so uh, let's just go straight to the passage. We're beginning in Malachi 3.13, and we'll read all the way to the end. <clears throat> Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking and mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the, feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of, of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son and serves him, uh, who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and, the, and all evildoers will be stubble. The day, is the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my, Moses, of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will, return, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, you speak so clearly in the Gospels through the New Testament that the prophets can feel a little strange to us, a little difficult to make sense of, and yet we know that you desire for us to understand what you have revealed through Malachi. You desire for us here some 2,500 years later to learn from this. Please enlighten our minds this morning that we may understand your word and strengthen our faith that we might rightly apply your word to our lives. Amen. So God begins with this statement here saying that uh, your words have been hard against me. Uh, hard against. We don't think difficult here. Think bitterness more than anything here. Uh, and, and it raises that question right off the bat as we're reading this. You know, have, have you ever spoken hard words against God? Have you ever been angry and bitter and accusatory or, or maybe just absolutely apathetic in the way that you, you speak to the Lord? Have you ever spoken them out loud, you know, about God to someone else? Maybe that's the way it's been done. Or, or, or just in your own frustration in the privacy somewhere, just screamed at God in broken frustration. Maybe just thought these words, right, in your, in your heart as, they, as these words begin to bitter into some, or brew into some sort of bitterness in your life. You know, thinking to yourself, you know, God must not care about me 
How else, you know? How else do you explain the, the way your life is going at times? You, you ever find yourself that, you know, despite you doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're seeking to obey the Word of God as best you can, can the way you're giving your time, your, your money to things that, God know, uh, that are important to God, um, yet you find your life one frustration after another. And so here's the deal. You might come to this point thinking, so what's the point? Why do any of this? Why bother? Why not just forget God and do whatever I want? That's kind of the situation that the Israelites have found themselves in here. So in our, our, our passage then, um, today, we're, there, there's these two distinct groups, right, that, that God has actually made this division here. And, and the first group are the ones who are, are not just frustrated, not just hurting, but who are speaking against God, speaking, um, you know, there in verse 14 you see it, speaking against God, it's say, it is vain to serve God, worthless. Uh, what is the profit of our keeping his charge, of, uh, of our walking as, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? See, this group is, is seeing serving God as, as worthless because they've watched others serve God, or watched others rather test God, meaning, you know, put him, challenge him, willfully disobey him, and yet they continue to prosper anyway. They're kind of like, uh, like, like the child who maybe has watched a, a classmate just blatantly disregard the teacher and, and just watching, see what's going to happen here. Oh, he's going to get it. And then see them absolutely get away with it. And, and as a result, come to the conclusion, if nothing happened to him, then I'm going to do whatever I want to do. What, what's the point here? Um, and, and then the second group, so that's the first group, the second group of people, uh, they're first acknowledged there in verse 16, and they're referred to as those who feared the Lord. Those who feared the Lord. Now listen, there, there is this dividing line that runs through all people in all of history. This is a, a line that has nothing to do with the other divisions that we, we understand in the world. Nothing to do with the divisions of race or gender or nationality or social economic standings. This is a line that, that God himself has established. It's the line that we saw from the very beginning verses of this book uh, when God made that statement, Jacob I have loved, but Esau, Esau I have hated. This dividing line is in regards to how any individual relates to God. Because not everyone acknowledges God is God. Not everyone in the world loves God, uh, you know, for being God alone. Not everyone fears the Lord, as our passage puts it. I mean, do you, do you understand this? this? This is the great dichotomy, right? The great separation. There are those who love God, and there are those who reject God. There are those who love God, and there are those who refuse God's right to be Lord in their lives, over their lives. And the accusation here by the Israelites against God, by this first group, uh, the one that said that they don't serve God, is that it doesn't matter what group you're in. It makes no difference. Look at the results. None of it means anything. They, they've concluded something along the lines of, uh, uh, you know, we might as well do whatever we want because there is zero benefit uh, to following God, to honoring God, because evil still prospers. That's where they find themselves. And I think on some level, we can, we can probably understand how they came to this view. Hopefully we're not there, but we can understand how they came to this view. They're uh, observing this world uh, that they lived in, that we live in, and they're realizing that, you know, it's not just the angry atheist, the antagonistic atheist who gets cancer. It's not only, only them who are, who are losing a spouse or are losing a parent while they're still young, right? 
Uh, they see people that, that do exactly what God has forbidden and, and yet go absolutely un, unpunished or even flourish. It's kind of like some of you might be able to imagine, uh, some of you younger people, because us old people didn't take online exams, but you know, imagine a, a peer of yours taking an online exam. You know it, you see it, they do it, they get away with it, they get to keep this A. And you watch that. Here is this, this flourishing in some sense that just seems completely unjust. It would be easy then to, to look at the surface level of the world. Everything we observe, when you look at our peers and everything going on around us, and just conclude there seems to be absolutely no benefit in fearing God. There is no benefit to following Him. Listen, you know, many in our day today still do what the Israelites did here. At the bottom like this, like the source of this, the most basic point, what's happening is, is they're relating to God as if he were some sort of a business transaction. They give God something, and then they expect something back in return. Maybe they're giving offerings, maybe they're uh, giving sacrifices, and they're expecting something back in return. It, it's not unlike um, when I walk into Chipotle, and, and the line's short enough that I decide to commit to this, and I give them money, right? Then I expect a burrito in return. That's the exchange here. I give you money, you give me a burrito. But if I went in there one day and I give them my money, um, you know, and instead of giving me back uh, the burrito that I've come for, they, they decide that they're going to give me nothing, right? Um, that would be a bothersome transaction. Uh, if they decide to, even worse, you know, they give me spinach artichoke dip. Um, and they decide they're going to give the burrito to the guy behind me who didn't pay for it. That's kind of the exchange that's going on here. And, and, and so there's this, this idea, if, if, if we interact with God this way, right, as if he's Chipotle, a business that's supposed to trade something, uh, then at some point you can come to the conclusion that, okay, God is quite worthless because he's not actually giving me back what I deserve, what I want. Um, he's lost his purpose. In the case of Chipotle, I wanted lunch and I got nothing. And, and that would be an absolute terrible business thing, right? We can all agree if Chipotle did that, they wouldn't exist anymore. Um, but that's not the way that we relate to God. It's not a business transaction. It's not on business terms. You know? And so you see this other group. The other group, the God-fearing group, didn't view God in terms of business, but in terms of a relationship. They fear God be, because He is God. They, they honor God because He's God. I mean, do they, do they want good health? Absolutely. Do they, do they want to, to prosper financially? Absolutely. And God might give them both, but, but that's not why they are serving God. That's not why they are honoring God. God is not some means to an end in their life. Uh, instead, loving God, knowing God, serving God, God is the end in their life. They understood themselves to be, to be children of God, not clients of God, not customers of God. See, hopefully, children don't love their father merely for what their father can buy them, even, even in this world, right? Hopefully, they love their father because it's their father, because they have this relationship with them, because they understand the, the love and the care of their, their father. Now, we don't know how big this God-fearing group is. It's never mentioned here. It could be a very small group, but, but they are mentioned here, and there in verse 16, we see that, indeed, God hears this group. He, he understands what they're saying, and, and he acknowledges it, and he's listening to it, and, and he says, you know, that they have honored the Lord's name. Sure, they, they might have questioned what God is doing at times, and, and you know, we've seen a, a few weeks ago even, right? The Psalms are full of people that are, that are questioning what God has done at any given moment. Um, 
And yet in the Psalms, they take this to God and they, and they share these frustrations with God, all the while still, frust, still trusting God with what they're going through. And so this God-fearing group still you know, esteems the name of the Lord. And then God helps them see what he's doing in the long term. In other words, listen, you're looking at this tiny little mark on the timeline. You're, you're looking for something here, and it's a big, long thing I need you to look at. There's all of eternity that's going on. Uh, and the first thing we see is that their names, those who fear the Lord, are written into this book of remembrance. Now, this idea of a book of remembrance, this is something real common. The, the Persian kings would actually keep these books... Uh, and they would write the names, the, the deeds and things that people have done, the names of people that have been faithful to them, uh, so they were remembered in this, in this book. If you've ever read the book of Esther, you know there's an example in there uh, where King Xerxes is, is writing down uh, uh, the names of, of, of people that have done stuff. And he would return to that book and look at it again to see what they had, they had done for him. Um, here, though, the, you know, the idea is that God has a book like that. In other words, despite the accusations that none of this matters, God actually does see everything, and he does care. And there is a distinction between the wicked and the righteous, as the passage puts it here. And then in verse 17 are these beautiful words of God. God says to those who fear him, his people, he says, They shall be mine. And the day when I make up my treasured possession, he says, they shall be mine. Are there any sweeter words in the world than to be possessed by someone in this manner? When a, when a mother, a father says to a child, you know, you, you are mine. When, when a husband or a wife says to their spouse, you're mine. When, when, when God, who is holy and righteous, you know, says to us, his creation, you are mine. You belong to me. You are a treasured possession. I mean, does it, does it resonate with you? Christian, God has redeemed you. He sustains you. He cares for you. He provides for you. He loves you. Uh, you're his. There is nothing greater than to be possessed by our good and gracious God. You're his child. And God delights in his children and those who love him. And so, Christian, we, we, we talk about this next part a lot, right? It seems to come up a lot in the Scripture, and it's important that we do talk about it because, if we're honest, our hearts are so tempted to go the opposite direction. And let me tell you what I mean, because I haven't told you anything yet. But, you know, you've got to remember this, that, that do not let the circumstances of our lives be the litmus test for whether God loves you or not. If things are crummy, if life is hard, if your marriage is struggling, if your finances are difficult, if emotional pain seems ever-present in your life, that's not because God has abandoned you. That's not because God doesn't love you. Do, do you understand that as a, a follower of Christ, by grace through faith, you are truly his treasured possession? Even when things are going bad in your life. Even when you're struggling with those things. He, he calls you his be, because you are his. 1 Corinthians 6.20 teaches us that you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And then in 1 Peter 2.9, we see that we are, how we are to relate to God. It says, but, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in verse 18 of our passage, God says, you're going to see the difference between these two groups. You might not see it today, but there is a very distinct, distinct difference. Those who, who serve the Lord, 
and are called righteous, and, and those who do not serve the Lord and are called wicked here. And God says he's going to spare those who are his treasured possession. He's going to do it by entering into history, by being the righteousness for us that we simply could not be. And then chapter 4 here speaks of the day of the Lord, this coming judgment. We've seen this all throughout Malachi. It's this picture of fire again. These are the images in Scripture that we, we, we kind of, most of us at least, don't really enjoy these images. They're, they're terrifying. Uh, you know, he's saying those who are rejecting God are, are compared to dry stubble. Dry stuff. It just burns up easily. And if you look at this illustration, what, what's in mind here is this picture of a tree that, that all of it's burned up, both the branches and the roots burned up completely. None of it is spared, in other words. Um, don't think into nothingness, but, but that punishment comes in a way that is not spared. And, and God's saying, those who have tested me and rejected me and, and found it vain to follow me long term, they will not escape. You know, you think back to the idea of that, that kid that gets away with it, Right? Sure, he got away with it then, but, but it's going to catch up to them. You know, at some point, you're going to need this information on another exam. You don't actually know it because you didn't learn it. Whatever it might be, at some point, it's going to catch back up. Uh, but then look at chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, that's a big change here. For you who fear my name, there's something different here, something different for them. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This word picture, the sun coming up and bringing light and, uh, you know, chasing off the darkness. Uh, at this, this time, they, they call it the ancient Near East, but there was this, this image of the sun, you know, that, that they would draw. And it was a common uh, picture of, of just a disc with these wings off of it. And it represented the, the sun in this culture. Uh, and God's using this picture uh, of the sun with the wings. He's using this image to describe that, that Christ is going to come into the world going to come into the world and just like the fire the sun brings heat but the sun doesn't bring heat to destroy but rather warmth and life the, it, you know it's kind of a, we've been through this incredibly long winter this year and, and have you noticed how everyone has just come alive and, and enjoyed it and absolutely loved it as, as, as the warmth from the spring sun has, has suddenly come around it, it's what we've all been waiting for Every, everyone but Christine Durrett who, who loves the winter for some reason uh, <clears throat> she's weird like that but, but the rest of us have just been longing for the sun to return and the warmth that it gives. The, uh, you know, and, and also just this light, right? Jesus often uh, is called the light of the world or, or some reference to light. In John 8, 12, he, he in fact says of himself, I am the light of the world. And this coming day will be for those who fear the Lord a, a day of joy. Uh, a day as God puts it in verse 2 here, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Not many of us have seen this before. Have any of you seen a calf leap from the stall? I actually looked up a video because I didn't grow up on a farm um, and wanted to see, is this a real thing? And it's kind of a wonderful thing to see a baby cow that's not really made for jumping. Uh, and, and after it's been locked away in, in this small stall for a while and let free, actually just starts leaping like the back feet are going off the ground, and it looks ridiculous to see a cow jumping. And, and it looks like the most joyful thing in the world that here's this creature that's not really naturally a rejoicer rejoicing. Um, they're just filled with energy and, and overjoyed to be out in this open space. So, so God's people would be leaping because of the arrival of the Son of Righteousness. Now, now there's an interesting thing that, that we see in the book of Luke here, because the first to leap for joy was the messenger who was to go before Jesus. 
Uh, it's the messenger that early on in Malachi 3 we were looking at. Uh, it's John the Baptist is who we're talking about. But when, when Elizabeth, the mother of, of John the Baptist, comes into the presence of Mary, the mother of Jesus, while both of them are still in the wombs of their mother, um, John's mother says to Mary in Luke 1.44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The first to leap for joy. There, there is joy at God coming into the world, and, and we're still joyous of Jesus coming into the world. I mean, what greater news is there than that Christ comes to save sinners? And then in verse 3, God says, Those who now fear him will, will one day, day tread down the wicked. And, and I'll tell you, the details of what that means, what that looks like, are, 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 are lacking. So you just got to understand here that the significance in this statement is, is this idea of, of it matters which of these two groups they belong to. All these things you're saying don't matter. They matter hugely. In, in verse 4, as the book is wrapping up, God gives uh, these guidelines for living. You know, he tells them, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Uh, Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai where God gave the Ten Commandments. And in other words, he's saying living our lives according to God's word matters. God desires that for us. God then continues this, this picture, right? If you you kind of have to step back and realize what picture God's painting, but it's this picture of a, a better future, a more hopeful future. And then in verse 5 there, he, he continues that theme as he writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. The promise of, of sending Elijah is fulfilled when John the Baptist uh, it, it comes into the world. It, it, you know, in, in Luke 1.17, it puts it this way. It says, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, and the disobedi disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He prepares the way of the Lord Jesus who comes and restores the relationship between God and his children. That's the father, that's the son. Um, and this is true for every generation, for all who have ever looked to Jesus, who do look to Jesus with faith. And, and, and so listen then, there, there is still and will always be these two groups in the world. That's a weird thing for us. You can't just look out and tell. But, but they exist. Those who fear the Lord and, and those who reject Him. Those who serve the Lord and those who don't. Those who are counted righteous and those who are not. Those who are God's children and those who are not. Now, of course, some of the people in Malachi's time and our culture today will, will deny this to be the case. There, there are many today who will say that, you know, um, because God is loving, and we know that much, that He won't send anyone to hell. There is no punishment. Everyone is, is equal. And so there's this idea that's absolutely contrary to, to what God reveals in Scripture, uh, but, but there's this insistence that there's only one group. That's what happens, though, when we create God in, in our image rather than the other way around, when we, when we just decide this is what I want God to be. On some level, we'd all want God to be that way, I think, right? And, and yet that's not the way God reveals himself in the truth of his word. <clears throat> and so when we refuse to acknowledge you, you know, that, that's, that's kind of what happens when we do refuse to acknowledge that, that the same God who reveals himself as, as loving, also in Deuteronomy 4.24, tells us that he is a consuming fire. 
This is the same God who says there will be a day of, of judgment when these two groups will finally be separated. He's even got these images, right? The, the goats and the sheep on one side. Those who, who go to uh, eternal everlasting bliss and those who go to everlasting eternal punishment. And these are hard things to hear, I think. But, but this is what God's word reveals. Now, I'll say Malachi had some wonderful things in it, but some of them, like this passage we have today, are just kind of weird to get your head around. And, and I, you, know, you come to this, and you start asking this, so what do we do with this? What do you do with this passage? And one of the questions when we come to the prophets is, is we've got to ask ourselves, how do I read this through the lens of the New Testament? Right? We're, we're reading this, but we're not reading it in a vacuum. God has continued to reveal himself. And, and one of the things we've got to learn here is that uh, we learn that in, in Christ, when we place our faith in him, we're, we're both adopted as God's children, and, and we're reborn into his children. We become God's children. We become his treasured possession. We were kept strength or kept safe in his strength. Our, our sins are removed. We are counted righteous. And I tell you that, and you hear that a lot here, but, but sometimes I think we want to doubt that. Again, you know, back to the beginning in some regard, but we want to doubt that because our life just kind of blows up. Um... The death of a close friend or the diagnosis of something terrible. You know, in those moments, we're, we're tempted to question the love of God. Uh, again, on the level of this is not how a loving person should love. This is my opinion, right? And, and there's that temptation to, to really doubt the love of God in that moment. And, and I'm telling you, in those moments, you, you've got to fight the desire to rebel against God, to reject him, to, uh, you know, for, for failing to deliver you in the way that you hoped he might. When you see the wicked around you prosper, don't, don't mistake that as, uh, you know, for the world being out of God's control somehow. It's not. He's working with eternity in mind, not, not just today. And he will absolutely set all things right. That's, that's a coming future. Also, and this is important, God is able and God is currently working in the hearts of people that you know. In the hearts of people that you know, that you might think their hearts are so hard, there's no way they're ever going to believe the gospel. You know, people who absolutely reject God currently, people who are apathetic anytime you want to discuss anything of, uh, of God with them. God is working, and he will bring many of those to faith. He will make them his children. God will include them as his treasured possession. And so I tell you this so you don't give up hope, so that you, 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 you know, you... You continue to interact with those people, praying that God might give them faith, so that you will show kindness and patience the way that God has shown you kindness and patience even in your rebellion. And so then the Old Testament comes to an end. It's not just the end of a book here, but the end of the Old Testament. And it ends with this, this hope, right? It's going to be a long period of time between the writing of Malachi and, and Christ being born into the world. Um, but there is this hope um, that it's going to be fulfilled by Jesus as the New Testament begins, who despite being holy and perfect, will unjustly hang upon the cross. It, it will be, everyone's going to look at this event of, of Christ on the cross, and it's going to look like not only is there no prophet in following God, but there was no prophet in following God even for Jesus himself. But, but on the cross, what we don't realize, what, what might not have been obvious to many people, was that God was crushing his most precious son in order to make us his treasured possession. 
listen, you're going to continue to wrestle within your heart. Really wrestle, right? If, if not now, someday in your life, you're going to face that temptation towards bitterness and anger, that, that temptation towards resentment of, of God's kindness and grace that you see being showed to others. Uh, and, and, and this is going to be when we must fight to see the goodness of God, even in the painful moments of life. And God will show eternal compassion to us, not, not because we are holy in and of ourselves, but because we're united to Christ through faith, and so his life and his death are counted as ours. So let me just end by asking, asking you this. In this great dichotomy of the world, what group do you understand yourself to be in? Are you resting in Jesus with faith, or are you rejecting the notion of God? Do you, do you relate to God? And this is for all of us, even if you've grown up in the church. Are you relating to God as a customer, as a customer to a business, or as a child to a father? Are you pondering today how you might grow in your love for God and grow in how you serve him with your life? Not, not in order to gain something, but in response to what you've already gained, what you've already been freely given in the gospel, in response uh, to, to God being gracious and simply being glorious. And I ask this because if you're not confident that you're included in the treasure possession of God as, as one of his children, I, I want you to know that you can be. Regardless of your past, Regardless of your present, the Lord invites you to look to Jesus with faith and find salvation. And, and as always, if you want to know more about what that means, by all means, you can talk to me or find any Christian you know. Any, anyone who understands this on any level would be more than ecstatic to answer your questions if you have them. I want to end with this quote from Ian Duguid, uh, Duguid as he talks about the day when, when God will set all things right. He says this, on that day, our tears will be dried, our sorrows will be comforted, our sickness healed, our losses made more than whole. Then indeed, we'll be like joyful calves in the spring sunshine, reveling in the fullness and completeness of our salvation in Christ, and in his beautiful, kind, and gracious words to us. Let's pray. Lord, do make us people who fear you rightly. And who know that in love you have purchased us with your blood, making us your treasured possession. So God, in a world that just oozes with humanism and meaninglessness, we, we ask that you would be real to us. Be, be real to us, Lord, that you would give us hope before the grave and beyond the grave. May we find in you, Lord, a tangible and lasting joy and absolute satisfaction because you are glorious. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.